Hey, Amen, I've got a hadith for you. Here, here it goes. O God, bestow your blessings on Syria. O God, bestow your blessings on Yemen. The people said, O messenger of God, what about Nejd? The prophet replied, There in Nejd will occur earthquakes, trials, tribulations, and from there will appear the horn of Satan. This is a very popular hadith amongst those who do not like the legacy of Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahab. Amen. What do you think about that hadith? I know what you're going to say. It's <laughs> fake. <laughs> yeah, of course, Thomas, it was fake. You know why? Because neither Syria nor Yemen were part of the Muslim community at that time. So uh, why the I Prophet see, was I blessing see. places that are Christian, you know, <laughs> at that time? Well, that's true. As I say, people who do not like the legacy of Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab, the subject of today's episode, uh, the second in our two-part series on bin Abdul Wahhab, people who don't like his legacy, they love quoting this hadith, and they say, you see, it was all foretold, a prophecy from the prophet that from Nejd would come the horn of Satan and would spread his evil influence across the land. In today's episode, we will be talking about earthquakes, trials, and tribulations, ones both caused and suffered by Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab. Let's finish our story about the great and notorious Muslim thinker. Amen. where did we leave off? Bin Abdul Wahhab had been in his hometown of Al-Uyayna, where he had initially won the support of its ruler, Uthman bin Muammar, until the overlord of the Nejd, the, uh, the, the emir of Al-Ahsa, told bin Muammar, get rid of that guy, after some notorious events, the uh, burning down and destruction of the tomb of the second caliph Omar's brother in Nejd, the uh, chopping down of a sacred grove of trees, and the stoning to death of an adulteress who may have been the ruler of Al-Assa's own relative. So there we left him, bin Abdul Wahhab, without that political protector that he thought he had found, seeking someone to rescue him from his distress. And who answered his call? Who but the ruler of the tiny town of Dir'iya on the outskirts of another small town, slightly larger, Riyadh, Muhammad bin Saud. Muhammad bin Saud. I have a soft spot for Muhammad bin Saud. I don't know why. Uh, he was clearly a political visionary or at least a very ambitious person. Tell us, Ayman, you as a Saudi growing up there, what does the name Muhammad bin Saud, uh, the founder of the House of Saud, what does that name mean to you? Muhammad bin Saud, the founder of the first Saudi kingdom, the founder of the dynasty, and most importantly, without him, the mission of Muhammad bin Abdul Wahhab would have been a very invisible footnote in history. Oh dear, suddenly I don't like Muhammad bin Saud. <laughs> I, are you sure you're traveling to Saudi Arabia soon, Thomas? <laughs> oh, no, no, no. <laughs> Don't tell them. Don't tell them. I love Saudi Arabia. I have such a warm, I have such a soft spot for the kingdom. And, you know, it's, I also love Scotland. But when I look, when I think about their, their Puritan reformers, I think poor people, really, honestly. Indeed. When I think of Mohammed bin Saud uh, in his town of Dra'iyya, a town of 40 houses. Can you believe it? At the time, there were mm -hmm. only 40 houses. That's it. But then... In 1744, when Muhammad Abdul Wahhab was expelled from Uyayna, 
Little did he know that his trip to Dur'iya, that town of only 40 houses, and their Amir, uh, Muhammad bin Saud, in 1744, this journey would change the face of the Middle East forever and would Absolutely. eventually lead to the restoration of Arabia into the center of Islamic affairs after almost 14 centuries of absence. Absolutely. And, you know, it's true. Uh, Mohammed bin Saud, he must have been politically ambitious because Diriyah, despite being only 40 houses, was the second most powerful town in that part of the Nejd, the part known as Al-Arid. He probably would have relished the idea of unseating his great rival, Al-Uyayna. So when Uthman bin Muammar, the ruler of Al-Uyayna, expelled this quote-unquote troublemaker, Muhammad bin Abdul Wahhab, Muhammad bin Saud thought, aha, here's my opportunity. I'll take him in, will provoke my rival in Uyayna, uh, and it will perhaps help me to realize my ambition of becoming the chief of the Nejd, to uh, unseat Uthman bin Muammar as chief of the Nejd. So he agreed to lend Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab his support. And as you say, yes, in 1744, bin Abdul Wahhab moved to Dir'iyah, and with him came several of his followers from Al-Uyayna. They made what in their own minds was a hijra from Al-Uyayna to Ad-Dir'iyah. Because in the early stages now of Abdul Wahhab's movement, his mission, he was really thinking of himself in terms of the Prophet Muhammad's own life. He thought that his life was mirroring Muhammad's life. And this move from Al-Uyayna to Ad-Dir'iyah, in his mind, mirrored the Prophet's hijra from Mecca to Medina back in the, you know, in, in the 7th century when the Prophet finally received that political support he needed against his enemies all around in Arabia. This is very much in Muhammad bin Abdul Wahhab's mind. Wouldn't you agree, Eamon? Indeed. Uh, this hijra, this migration, of course, would, just like the hijra of the Prophet Muhammad, which, you know, from Mecca to Medina would shape history, the same thing happened here. And the fact that Muhammad bin Saud offered Muhammad al-Wahhab his support, it also meant that this would strengthen Dar'iya so much in extremely short uh, space of time because within months, the houses of Dar'iya swelled from 40 to 70 to 100 to 200. Why? Because of the migration of so many of people who were supportive of this new movement, of this new mission, who were sympathetic to the teachings of Muhammad bin Abdul Wahhab. And this would inevitably lead to a clash with the other emirates of Najd. That's true. It was going to provoke a reaction. But before we get to the reaction, let's uh, remind the listener of Muhammad bin Abdul Wahhab's teaching. Bin Abdul Wahhab himself summarized his teaching in a, well, I don't know, they call it a letter, an epistle, an essay, whatever, a bit later on. And I think it's a good summary. Uh, it's in Bunzel's book, Wahhabism. Again, I recommend it. And this is it in Bunzel's own translation. Bin Abdul Wahhab wrote, The foundation of Islam and its principle are two commands. The first is the command to worship God alone with no partner, to agitate for this, to show loyalty for the sake of it, and to pronounce takfir on those who do not practice it. The second command is to warn against associating other beings with God, to be harsh in this, to show enmity for the sake of it, and to pronounce takfir on those who practice it. 
That emphasis on pronouncing takfir is to some extent the theme of this, uh, of this episode, takfir, calling someone a kafir, calling someone an unbeliever, and therefore laying them open to conquest, to forcibly submitting them to follow Islam. This becomes the leitmotif of this half of uh, Muhammad bin Abdul Wahhab's life, which was devoted to jihad. One of the things we learn is that tawheed... Monotheism. Yeah. The declaration of God's unity. Yeah. Exactly. Tawheed is i'tiqadun bil jinan, a belief in the heart, wa nutqun bil lisan, and a statement with words. On the lips. Yeah, on the lips. Wa amalun bil arkan, and an action with your limbs. So your heart, your tongue, your limbs must all coordinate in order to show and to act and to believe. And part of that action is pronouncing takfir upon those who do not pronounce or do not act in accordance with monotheism. But more than that, in Bin Abdul Wahab's mind, pronouncing takfir upon those who refuse to pronounce takfir on other people. It's a cascading form of takfir. Did you encounter this in the circles of like Salafi jihadists when you were with them? This this takfir, takfir, you know, and, and eventually if you sort of, you start pronouncing takfir everywhere, well, you're left with yourself. Like there's just one non-kafir yourself. Goodness, I've seen it myself. Like, and I mean, it was, this happened in Afghanistan. I remember that there was this person from Yemen who kept pronouncing takfir against everyone and anything, you know, and to the point where basically like, you know, says, look, I, do, I haven't yet pronounced takfir on every kafir in this world. And until I pronounce takfir against every kafir in this world, I am myself a kafir. So he made takfir against himself in the end. And it became reminiscent of schizophrenic paranoia, <laughs> I mean, to be honest, <laughs> you know. Uh, and I think there, there was a relation to mental illness here. But if you, if you look at it from the point of view of Ibn Abdul Wahhab, he wanted to use takfir as an instrument in order to herd, you know, the scholars of Najd into choosing a camp. Either you are on the side of those who want to enforce Tawheed, the uh, div- div- unity of the divine, or you are on the part of those who want to spread shirk. There, there can no longer be a peaceful coexistence between our side, which is the Tawheed, and their side, which is the idolatry. Now, I'm going to be fair to Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab here. Now, this is the only time I'm going to be fair. (laughs) Surprise, Uh, surprise. So so it has to be said that though his preaching was very provocative and his preaching inclined always in the direction of calling for jihad against people who would have thought themselves as Muslims already— he never explicitly called for jihad against them until they called for jihad against him. So to be fair to bin Abdul Wahhab, initially jihad for his mission and his movement and his followers was uh, in self-defense because the scholars of Nejd and beyond, they called for jihad against his mission first. So a great scholar in Mecca according to Bunzel's translation, said it is incumbent on those Muslim rulers who are capable of doing so to restrain him, 
to hinder him until he repents of this horrific act. Another scholar in Mecca said he should be imprisoned, beaten, treated with medication for insanity. He is a misled misleader who should be killed and publicly denounced. If my hands could reach him, I would kill him myself. And a scholar in Medina said, it is a duty incumbent upon all who are able without delay to wage jihad against this sinner and to do whatever it takes to kill him and free all people from his gross error. You know, <laughs> that's pretty provocative language. So, you know, the, to this day, those who scholars call Wahhabis, those Salafis who follow the teachings of Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab say, they started it. <laughs> we didn't start it, they did. Indeed. I mean, at the end of the day, like, and I mean, if you look at the fact that when ibn Abdul Wahhab was marching from Ayayna to Dir'iyya, I don't think he had any ambitions to actually aid Ibn Saud to start a war of unification of Arabia. I don't think it came even close to his mind because all he wanted is a place where his followers can congregate together and spread, you know, through preaching, the principles of Tawheed. However, war was waged against them because it was inevitable that there would be a clash. You're right that the initial expansion of the emirate of Dir'iya under Muhammad bin Saud after Muhammad bin Abdul Wahhab came there was a through preaching. So bin Abdul Wahhab, now free to preach openly, did so. And several settlements in the vicinity of Dir'iya turned toward him. They, they accepted his preaching and accepted Islam, if you like, from him. And therefore came under the, the, the rulership of, of his protector, uh, Muhammad bin Saud. But, as you say, because bin Abdul Wahhab's teaching was inherently polarizing, you know, you're either with Tawheed, as I understand it, or you're against it, it led to Nejdi politics initially to be polarized. And taking a step back from the religious side of things and thinking it, it just in terms of politics, this is very interesting because the Nejd had never been unified it hadn't even been polarized. It had been totally frac fragmented. It was a fractured polity. So in a way, looking just through the a secular lens of political science, a fractured, fragmented area went from like multiplicity of rule to duality of rule. So in, in, a, in a way, you needed the pressure of something like bin Abdul Wahhab's preaching to create a duality within this fragmented universe. And then out of that duality, the clash of two could emerge one, unity, and a state could emerge for the first time in 700 years. Don't you find that dynamic quite interesting? It took a genius, if you like, like Ben Abdul Wahhab and his religious preaching to motivate the political state-building project in the Nejd that it had long lacked. Indeed, there is no question, and it is mirroring again the life of the Prophet Muhammad. Prophet Muhammad was born into bloodbath Arabia uh, in uh, the year 570, <laughs> And, you know, the reality is that, you know, Arabia as a, uh, you know, as a landmass was never, ever, ever incorporated or unified as a political entity at all. It was uh, fragmented into 400 tribes and a few fiefdoms and kingdoms here and there. But that's it. By the time of his death, he had both polarized and then unified Arabia under the banner of the new religion, Islam. Ibn Abdul Wahhab also caused the same to happen in Najd. However, it didn't take one Muhammad, it took two Muhammads to do it. Ibn Abdul Wahhab, Ibn Saud. So 
After the preaching uh, began from Deir-Ia, after some of these settlements joined the movement and fell under the overlordship of Muhammad bin Saud, the first emir in the Nejd to oppose this movement was, and this is kind of ironic given where history would end up going, the emir of Riyadh. Uh, Daham bin Dawas. Yes, Daham bin Dawas, who is like, actually funny, he was the most strenuous opponent to bin Saud, bin Abdul Wahab, and their movement. For 30 years, war would rage between Riyadh and Deir-Iyah, and they're right next to each other. And it, it really does shed a light on the political nature of this process, because you know, th- this is a rivalry between two emirs who want to have overlordship in their region. Uh, and Daham bin Dawas fought really, really ruthlessly, remorselessly, endlessly to escape the ever-spreading power of bin Abdul Wahab's mission. Uh, so he started it, in a way, by attacking one of the recently Wahhabized, if you like, towns, Manfuha. He attacked it in 1746. This elicited an immediate response from bin Saud and bin Abdul Wahhab, fighting back against bin Dawas. In the means of this fight back, which in their minds, they're now waging jihad in self-defense, the mission spreads by the sword for the first time. And some nearby towns are forced to submit to bin Saud's newly Wahhabized rule, including Huraymila, the town where bin Abdul Wahhab narrowly escaped an assassination attempt and was forced to flee from. And in that same year, Al-Uyayna. Right away, bin Saud, Muhammad bin Saud, achieved his ambition of knocking his rival, Uthman bin Muammar, off his perch by conquering Al-Uyayna and forcing Uthman bin Muammar to submit to him and to Muhammad bin Abdul Wahhab. Indeed. Although there was there was some reconciliation, as you know, uh, Abdul Aziz bin Muhammad bin Saud married uh, the daughter of uh, Uthman bin Muammar. That's right. Just just like uh, you know, bin Abdul Wahhab himself had married Uthman's aunt as a way of cementing a political alliance. The House of Saud and the House of Muammar, if you like, they cemented this new alliance through um, through marriage. And it it raises the question of the unique partnership that Muhammad bin Saud and Muhammad bin Abdul Wahhab had. You know, it's in the historical sources when a town would submit to the mission, they would actually give the bay'ah to both men, both Muhammad bin Saud and Muhammad bin Abdul Wahhab. So there was an idea that the mission and the political polity that was spreading as a result of the mission was a duopoly, if you like, between political and a religious leader. The bay'ah was given to both of them, by which I mean the swearing of allegiance, you know, and, and Traditionally in Islam, you give your bay'ah to the political power, to the emir. But at the beginning of the mission, at the beginning of the Nejdi mission, the Wahhabi mission, the bay'ah was sworn to both men. Uh, and that is unique and I think kind of revealing about the, the, the sense that this mission had of its religious political destiny. To this day, this dynamic of having the political you know, leadership on one side and the religious leadership on the other side coexisting and working together for one mission still exists to this day among jihadi uh, groups, whether it is Al-Qaeda or ISIS or any of the other, even Hamas and the Taliban. So you will see that the overall command of the uh, organization is given to people who are competent in the fields of military and administration. However, 
the religious command is given to those who are competent in the theological science. And this is where the two coexist, sometime easily, sometime not so easily. Uh, and I think it's always tricky. Sometimes Al-Qaeda, yeah. in the run-up to 9-11 and Al-Qaeda, there's something like a dynamic between bin Abdul Wahhab and, and, and Mohammed bin Saud in, in the dynamic between Osama bin Laden and Ayman al-Zawahiri and those Egyptians. You know, we talked about the, the tension within Al-Qaeda between the Arabian and the Egyptian rulers, leadership. And I, I just sort of think there's a slight echo because Osama bin Laden, yes, he was a competent man of, of, of action. He he'd performed to some extent in a military capacity in the jihad against the Soviets in Afghanistan. But he was also a very persuasive and charismatic religious thinker and preacher. And so he kind of had the leadership in a way, which he shared <laughs> with the Shura Council and, and the others who were more operationally inclined, more militarily inclined. Is there some echo there maybe of what it would have been like inside the Wahhabi mission, the Nijdi mission at the beginning as it began to expand? Well, of course. I mean, from the point of view of Muhammad and the Wahhab, the mission is about to purify you know, Islam from the residue of idolatry. From the point of view of Ibn Saud, yes, he is doing that, but in the process, he is getting the divine reward of having to unify Najd for the first time in 700 years under his command. So basically, he is getting the reward in the afterlife and in this life at the same time. Like, I mean, he's getting a very good deal. It's a win-win for him. <laughs> uh, it wasn't a win-win for poor Uthman bin Mu'ammar, though. He may have felt by submitting to Muhammad bin Saud in 1746 that he was going to save his skin. But sadly, in 1750, Uthman bin Mu'ammar was assassinated by a Wahhabi, uh, by a follower of bin Abdul Wahhab. Now, the claim was that uh, Uthman bin Muammar was planning a rebellion against the mission. It's possible. There is, a, a, according to the Western scholars, there's no actual proof of this. And because Uthman had initially responded so favorably to bin Abdul Wahhab's preaching, it strikes me as maybe unlikely and that maybe this is just a question of politics. You know, if it's the case that Muhammad bin Saud was seeking to expand his authority over the Nejd, Uthman bin Mu'ammar was a problem. You know, he would have stood in his way. He had been the foremost emir of the area. So maybe that's why Uthman bin Mu'ammar was assassinated in 1750. Nonetheless, he was assassinated. And again, it's telling that after he was uh, assassinated, the man who came to Al-Uyena to install a new political leader there was not Muhammad bin Saud. It was Muhammad bin Abdul Wahhab. He came, he selected the leader, he put that leader in place. Again, showing how the relationship between the religious and the political power at the beginning of the mission was a bit mixed. It, the line was very blurred, for sure. I wish I could say that the mission spread unimpeded, unopposed. It's not the case. The very next year in 1751, Horaymila rebels. In the words of bin Abdul Wahhab, it apostatizes. And, and this returns us to the fascinating character of uh, Muhammad bin Abdul Wahhab's brother, Suleiman, because he was the chief jurist of Horaymila at the time. And in the, in the memory, uh, Amen, of, of Saudis today, of those who uh, are Salafis in the, in the tradition of Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab, what does his brother Suleiman bin Abdul Wahhab, uh, what, what, what sort of memory does he have in that tradition? If Muhammad bin Abdul Wahhab was a symbol of the light, 
Suleiman is a symbol of darkness. If uh, <laughs> Muhammad Abdul Wahab was a symbol of purity, well, Suleiman is a symbol of apostasy, of selfishness, you know, and of putting his own, you know, uh, jealousy and self-ambition above that of the good of the community. In 1753, Suleiman writes a number of letters to Al-Uyayna, uh, explaining where his brother Muhammad had gone wrong, had gone astray, uh, inviting them to join Huraymila in the rebellion against Muhammad bin Saud and Dir Iyya. But these, the reason we even have these letters is because the, the men delivering the letters were apprehended by Dir Iyya agents. And on Muhammad bin Abdul Wahhab's orders, they, these men were executed. So we see there's already a fierce war going on between the brothers. And at this point, from a self-defensive form of jihad, Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab's movement becomes an offensive jihad. He explicitly calls the people of Huraymila idolaters, mushrikeen, and even apostates, murtaddin. This is a very strong language, and it suggests that in his own mind, Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab is about to wage a Rida war, like the early generation of Muslims. So he's still in that mentality that he is fighting the same fight that the early Muslims fought, and now it's Huraymila that must be brought to heel. As far as Ibn Abdul Wahhab was concerned, Huraymila, you know, under his, you know, brother's kind of command, Suleiman, rebelled and became an apostate, you know, settlement. And therefore it needed to be brought back to heel and brought back into the fold of Islam as he saw it. So he went with a thousand of Adriya men by the way, when we say a thousand, at that time it was a big number in Najd. So they went to Huraymila, and of course there was a big battle between the two sides. The people of Huraymila lost a hundred of their warriors to only seven. The Dari'a people lost only seven. That shows what you know, formidable warriors they were. Yeah, no doubt Huraymila was outnumbered, but still animated by the zeal for the mission. The, you know, yeah. Bin Abdul Wahhab, Bin Saud's warriors must have been very ferocious, very formidable. Exactly. And that resulted at the end of Suleiman fleeing all the way to Az-Zilfi. Az-Zilfi is uh, somewhere between Najd and Kuwait at the moment. In uh, the north, yeah. In the north, yeah. The war waged, you know, between the two brothers, you know, for a bit, but then they tracked him all the way to Az-Zilfi. Uh, Suleiman was tracked to Az-Zilfi and there he was captured, brought back to Dur'iya, placed under house arrest for the rest of his life. Yeah, so, you know, Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahab wasn't messing around. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I like the story of the war between the two brothers. It makes it very dramatic, very personal. It's, it slightly reminds me of the story we told briefly a few episodes ago about the, the battle of the brothers uh, Amin and Ma'mun in the Abbasid period. You know, in this case, uh, Suleiman lost out. He was captured. He was placed under house arrest. He, he outlived his brother in the end, but he, he never emerged a free man again. Uh, that's, that's what you got for opposing the mission of Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab. And that brings us to the end of the first half of this episode. When we come back, we will tell the story of the continuing expansion of the emirate of Dir'iya, which uh, didn't proceed as smoothly as you might think and ended up really clashing with the big bad guy of the Middle East, the Ottomans. Stay tuned for that.
We're back. We're racing on to the to the climax of our uh, sweeping history of Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab and his mission. When we left him, he had just tracked down his brother, Suleiman, and placed him under house arrest. That effort actually took several decades during the period of time when the emirate of Diriyah under the command of Muhammad bin Saud and his descendants was spreading and meeting resistance, initially amongst those towns in the Nejd that they were incorporating into the mission. So in 1756, an area called Mehmal is conquered, and then different towns would apostatize. In the, in the minds of Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab, towns would try to throw off Diriyah's rule, and therefore they would become apostates. So the Ridda Wars, the wars of apostasy, were continuing, and in the midst of this, Outside powers were going to get involved. So, for example, in 1758, the greater power of Al-Assa on the east, on the Persian Gulf Coast, invaded. This helped to in inspire the emir of Riyadh, who was constantly fighting back and forth with Diriyah, to continue his struggle. This would go back and forth for decades. Thousands of lives would be lost in the, in the course of these wars, but slowly, slowly, the Wahhabi mission, the Nejdi mission, was spreading. Indeed, every time the Saudi, now we can call them the Saudi. Yeah, let's call them the Saudi. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the Saudi forces would conquer a city or a settlement. The first thing that Ibn Abdul Wahhab would do is to assign one of his you know, students to be the scholar of the region in order to teach the people there the principles of Tawheed, the principles of the faith and the creed as he saw fit. Also, Dur'iyah in itself uh, became the center of learning, the new center of learning for Najd. So Najdi would-be scholars would be flocking into Dur'iyah in order to learn Islamic theology based on the purity of the faith as Muhammad bin Abdul Wahhab would have envisioned. In addition to my in inward migration uh, of those who were attracted to bin Abdul Wahhab's message, there was outward migration of those who were not attracted to it, and they, they left. Uh, so... His, his campaign of purity was taking place. Nejd was becoming a place purely in accordance with his mission. Outsiders tried to do something about this. In 1764, there was a great invasion of the Nejd from Najran, which is in the south of the current Saudi Arabia, on, sort of just north of the mountains separating Saudi Arabia from Yemen, Najran. At that time, Najran was uh, being led by an Ismaili Shia leader. Uh, and Najran has always been a little bit funny in Arabia. Even at the time of the Prophet, it was Christian, for example. So uh, Najran remained a little bit like, a little bit of a, had, had some outsider status. At this time, it was Ismaili Shia. They invaded Nejd. And uh, in a big battle south of Riyadh, the, the Saudis were decisively defeated. It was their first big experience of defeat. And this encouraged the leader in Al-Assa in the east to invade, to take advantage of that moment of weakness to invade. So the leader of the Beni Khalid in Al-Assa, who still considered themselves nominal overlords of Nejd, they invaded, and during the course of their invasion, most of the Nejdi towns that had joined the Saudi movement, had joined the Wahhabi mission, lent their support to Al-Assa. So it was a period of great setback for Dir'iyah. 
Muhammad Masoud, in his great wisdom, foresaw that by being the incubator of this new movement, Dur'iya would be attacked, no matter what. And therefore, he built walls around Dur'iya. He made sure that Dur'iya would become a fortress. A fortress that, later in this episode we will explain, would withstand the test of time. However, when the people of Najran, you know, the Bani Yam, as we call them, uh, when they defeated the Saudis in that battle south of Riyadh, and of course the people of Al-Ahsa uh, under Bani Khalid uh, decided to invade, they realized that as soon as they went to Dur'iyya to besiege it, that, oh, there is a wall. <laughs> there is a wall that is very difficult to breach. And therefore, the uh, what ensued after that was the uh, siege of Dur'iyyat, and the siege eventually failed, since these forces did not have the means or the know-how to breach the walls, and therefore they retreated. They did retreat. It was the last great sort of event in Muhammad bin Saud's life. He died the following year, and uh, the leadership of the Emirate of Dur'iyyat passed to his son, Abdulaziz who acquired the title of Imam. So the historical sources give him this title f- for the first time. Muhammad bin Saud is not known as Imam in the historical sources, but his son Abdulaziz is. And this is an indication of, of a development that's occurring within the movement. We said that before the religious and political sides were existing in some kind of harmony or maybe at times, who knows, behind the scenes a bit of tension. But with Abdulaziz's ascent to the throne, if you like, and especially with his son's later ascent, a few, uh, you know, a little while later, Saud, the political half of the relationship is asserting itself as preeminent. They're calling themselves imams. They are the leaders of the mission. And Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab and his followers, especially his sons and grandsons, the al-Sheikh, as they would be known, are supporting the House of Saud. And, and this dynamic crystallizes at this time following Muhammad bin Saud's death, where at the top is the House of Saud and they're being supported by the House of the Sheikh. Is that about getting it right, Eamon, would you say? Indeed. I mean, there is no question that Abdul Aziz bin Saud became the first one to be called Imam, you know, among the uh, leaders of the Saudi dynasty. And in fact, to this day, the Saudis believe that the founding day of their dynasty is 1727, not 1744 when the pact happened between Muhammad bin Saud and Muhammad bin Abdul Wahhab. No, they believe that the founding of their dynasty started when Muhammad bin Saud became the emir of Dar'iyya in 1727. That is a, in itself a fascinating story. The recent reframing of Saudi history for foregrounding Muhammad bin Saud in giving Muhammad bin Abdul Wahhab a supporting role is a fascinating story that says a lot about the way in which Saudi Arabia is going today. That's for another episode. Indeed. Back to <laughs> Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab and his story. When Abdul Aziz becomes Amir of Dir Iyya and becomes the imam of the movement, the movement begins to really spread. And this is because, I, th- I would say for two reasons. First of all, accepting Wahhabism, accepting the movement meant that you had to provide troops to the ongoing jihad. So the dynamism of the movement and the inspiration that it inspired amongst the warriors was such that it gave them zeal, it gave them power. But also, Imam Abdulaziz's son, Saud, was a great 
warrior. There's no question. One of the great warriors of the 18th century, and it would be under his first military and then political and military leadership that the Emirate of Daria would expand to encompass most of the peninsula, which would, of course, be very provocative to the great powers of the age. First, between 1767 and 1786-87, the whole of the Nejd is finally and fully conquered when uh, all the way up to Al-Hatl in the north falls under the uh, rule of the House of Saud. And during that final campaign to unite the Nejd around Deir-Iyah's rule, Qasim in the north was also conquered. And you get a sense from reading the sources that the warriors in the mission, the warriors who were inspired by Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab, they, they saw themselves almost like, I think, like avenging angels. You know, they were going out there to purify, to to act as God's avengers. <laughs> Maybe they're the original avengers. avengers. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the, the, the avengers of Daria are assembling and purifying uh, Arabia from shirk, from idolatry, even though <laughs> these were all Muslims. It's a, it's a very strange, <laughs> strange thing. We've lost sight a little bit now of Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab himself. And I th- I'd like, like to spend five minutes or so just chatting about him. At times in his writings, he suggests that he was the recipient of, let's call it, divine inspiration. You know, I wouldn't want to say revelation. That would perhaps take it, take it too far. But there are moments where Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab thinks of himself as uh, the recipient of divine inspiration. And we've said that he felt very strongly that he was following not just in the footsteps of the prophet. All Muslims are meant to follow in the prophet's footsteps, but that his life was a mirror of the prophet's life, that he was in fact recapitulating the same dynamic of converting the world to Islam that the prophet had done, you know, a thousand and more years before. What do you think about this? Try to put us, if you can, Eamon, into the into Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab's own mind and describe his spirituality. What is his spirituality like? Because he clearly thinks that he's receiving some kind of guidance directly from God. Remember, he believed himself to be, and still, you know, to this day, you know, many of the uh, Salafi Najdi scholars believe this to be the case, that he was, uh, you know, the Mujaddid, you know, the renewer. Uh, The renewer of the renewer of the religion. Yeah. Indeed. I know uh, there is a hadith, it is disputed whether it is authentic or not, but there is a hadith that every hundred years, there is, you know, someone who God will guide and inspire to be the renewer of the faith. Everyone believed Umar ibn Abdul Aziz, one of the Umayyad caliphs, to be the first one. Ahmed ibn Hanbal was believed to be the second one. And Ibn Abdul Wahhab was believed to be one of the later ones. Even Ibn Taymiyyah was believed to be, you know, a mujaddid. Because in, in a sense, they all coincided with the turn of a new Islamic century. And therefore, Ibn Abdul Wahhab must have believed himself to be an inspired mujaddid, an inspired renewer of the faith. Because for him, he was always talking about the age of ignorance, the age of darkness, the, the fact that Najd and the rest of the Muslim world was plunged into the darkness of heresy, and that the light of the pure faith is going to cast away all of these demons, and we will live again under a pure faith that is 
not polluted by all the heresies that has been imported from other religions and other you know, sects. Now, this is a provocative question, Eamon, but mm-hmm. you know, when I'm thinking about the, the, the Dir Ia mission at that time and this, this rhetoric of purity and impurity, this rhetoric of takfir against people who may think that they're Muslims but actually aren't because they don't understand Islam properly, they don't understand monotheism properly, this invitation to people to come to Dir Ia to join the jihad there, it does remind me of ISIS. It's a provocative question because I don't want to reduce the first Saudi state and the emirate of Dir Ia to ISIS. It's not true uh, because, in fact, Dir Ia witnessed a a flowering of culture and learning at that time. Uh, The library in Dir Ia became famed. Books were resourced from Yemen and elsewhere. And, you know, there's a lot more about the emirate of Dir Ia than just jihad. In some respects, the rhetoric, the the way, the self-identity of it reminds me of ISIS. It reminds me of ISIS because ISIS borrowed heavily from the legacy of Ibn Abdul Wahhab. You know, they borrowed, however, the political uh, side of it. They didn't borrow the religious side of it because if they were really following exactly like, I mean, the uh, footsteps of the religion, they would understand that there are guidelines and safeguards against uh, pronouncing takfir so randomly like this. The pronunciation of takfir, as far as Ibn Abdul Wahhab was concerned, was against the population in general, but not against the individuals in particular. ISIS took it to the extreme where they pronounced takfir against the population and the individuals. And therefore, every single individual within the population is treated as a kafir. While, you know, with Ibn Abdul Wahhab, the takfir wasn't designed in order to subjugate the takfir was designed in order to tell the people that you are in a way of error. You are outside the zone. Please come back into the zone. While in ISIS case, you are outside the zone. I'm going to shoot you. <laughs> I mean, so, that, yeah. <laughs> that, uh, that foreshadows in a way the next figure we're going to cover in this series of uh, radical Muslim figures, uh, Sayyid Qutb, uh, because uh, uh, his influence on modern Salafi jihadism and generally speaking, the Muslim Brotherhood's influence is the other side. You know, today we're talking about the Wahhabi dimension of of, of radical Islam today. In the next two episodes, we're going to talk about that Muslim Brotherhood, uh, Sayyid Qutb's side. And that's really where, you know, ISIS's religious ideology comes from. Uh, I think Indeed. you would agree. As for Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab, the last recorded political act of his life uh, is in 1787. So he's seen the, fi- the unification of the Nejd under the emirate of Dir Ia. He doesn't know it, but just around the corner, that emirate is going to expand to include most of the Arabian Peninsula. The last thing he did was he ordered his followers to swear allegiance, to give the bay'ah to Saud bin Abdulaziz, meaning that you know he would become the imam after his father Abdulaziz's death. And in 1792, Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab died. It's funny because we've been telling these uh, stories of, of figures, you know, Ahmed bin Hanbal, ibn Taymiyyah, they sort of died in tragic circumstances, both of them, with a cloud over them being, well, Ibn Hanbal had reconciled with the political authority, but he felt, you know, like he had compromised himself a bit. Ibn Taymiyyah died in prison. But Muhammad Ibn Abdul Wahhab, his life was different. He died in glory, in a way. At the moment of his death, the emirate of Dir Ia was, was strong, uh, was going to get even stronger you know, this series is really about Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab. He's now dead. But I think it's important because though he died, let's say, in his glory, 
within 20 years, the Emirate of Diria was going to experience tremendous catastrophe that followed upon a, a, an expansion. So in 1793, Al-Asa in the east was annexed after decades of, uh, of raiding parties from the Wahhabi warriors. So Al-Asa would be routinely raided and subject to certain despoliation by the, the Nejdi warriors. But it was only in 1793, finally, that it was incorporated into the emirate. At that point, the emirate spreads north or tries to and begins attacking Iraq, most notoriously in 1802 when the, uh, the Nejdi warriors raid the Shia holy city of Karbala. They cause a lot of destruction there. This event of the, the Wahhabi, if you like, despoliation of Karbala redounds to this day in the memory of the Shia. The Imam Saud was utterly unrepentant. <laughs> and then in 1803, the next year, Saud becomes imam, uh, which is going to lend even more sort of force to the movement. But tell the story, Amen, of how his father, Imam Abdulaziz, died. It's directly related to the uh, the raid in uh, in Karbala. Well, of course, like you know, he was assassinated by a Shia from Iraq who came all the way to Dariya in order to avenge, you know, the sacking of Karbala and the destruction of the uh, shrine of Hussein, you know, and therefore, from the point of view of uh, the followers of Ibn Abdul Wahhab, this echoes the assassination of the second caliph, Umar ibn Khattab, at the hand of a Persian, you know, avenging the conquest of the uh, Persian Empire. It is <laughs> rather, <laughs> you know, it's like as if history is repeating itself again totally. and again and again and totally. again in the Middle East. <laughs> and, and Imam Saud, he looked north at the Ottoman Empire especially, and he, he called them the room. He called, he thought they were the Byzantines. He was back in the 8th century, the 7th and 8th centuries. He was like Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab had felt, I am living again. The early Salaf, the sort of the experience of the early Salaf. We are going to take the Romans. We're going to conquer the Ottomans in the north. Uh, when he becomes imam, the conquest of the Hejaz in the west of the peninsula, where the holy cities are, was already uh, being uh, you know, carried out in earnest. Saud entered Mecca later that year, 1803, began destroying tombs. Uh, he couldn't hold the city, uh, though, and, and they, they set their sights instead on Medina. In 1805, they conquered Medina, destroyed tombs there. These are sending profound shockwaves of concern across the Muslim world. These are holy places in the minds of most Muslims at the time that the the Wahhabis, the Saudis are destroying. Uh, and, in, and then in 1806, uh, Imam Saud conquered Mecca for good and incorporated Mecca into the, into the first Saudi state, the Emirate of Dir'iya. Well, tell us, Ayman, how the sultan in Istanbul would have greeted that, you know, that piece of news. Very, very provocative. He wasn't happy about it at all. <laughs> um, you know, of course, uh, the sultan in Istanbul was also carrying the title caliph. And therefore, how could you be the caliph and the custodian of the two holy mosques if the two holy mosques are not under your control? <laughs> I mean, and so, yeah. uh, and especially from their point of view, of course, remember that the Ottomans were Sufi Bektashis which makes them, you know, idolaters, you know, <laughs> in, in the eyes of the Wahhabis. But nonetheless, uh, the Sultan sent a stern letter to Muhammad Ali Pasha, 
Yes, uh, our friend, the Kedi, the Kedive, Kedive of Egypt. The Khedivi, yeah, the Khedivi of Egypt. Muhammad Ali. We talked about him a lot last season. Uh, this is the modernizing uh, leader of Egypt, uh, nominally under uh, the Sultan's control, but very much a, a, a renegade uh, doing his own thing. But still, the Sultan said, "Look, dude, you've got to help me out." <laughs> Indeed. So, you know, Muhammad Ali Pasha mustered two armies, uh, one under his son Ibrahim. Pasha and one under his other son, Consul Pasha. So he sent them to the Hejaz to rest it back in the 1810s. They rested back from the Wahhabis. Of course, there were so many battles, the Battle of Wadi Safra, the Battle of Yambu, the Battle of Jeddah. I mean, goodness, there's so many battles happening there. And then after that, they moved to al Ghasim. In the meantime, Imam Saud dies. So the, yeah. so the, 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 the Emirate of Daria loses its, its military genius. Indeed. Uh, his, his son, Abdullah, takes over. Not much is known about Abdullah. It's, it's, I think he's probably less of a military genius. I, I think it wasn't about being a military genius. It's the fact that he was facing an overwhelming force. I mean, the Ottomans came with roughly 50 pieces of artillery. Yes. And of course, with the modern muskets and rifles. That's right. You know, all of the Ottoman generals by this point had been, under Muhammad Ali, had been trained by French uh, generals of seasoned in the Napoleonic Wars. Napoleon himself had conquered Egypt and had begun that process of modernization, which we talked about in the last season. So this is the force that the Wahhabis are now facing, a proper modernized military. Indeed. It was the battle between the old world and the new world. Mm. In 1818, Ibrahim Pasha and his army made it all the way, you know, with about 15,000 fighters to Dur'iyya. That's it. Now they have been pushed all the way back to the beginning, to where it all yeah. started. But the walls of Dur'iyya withstood, even it withstood the artillery. Can you believe it? <laughs> Dur'iyya withstood for six months. However, with more forces coming, Ottoman forces coming from Basra, Imam Abdullah bin Saud, saw the writing on the same walls that his great-grandfather <laughs> built <laughs> and decided to surrender. Abdullah bin Saud surrendered, seeking good terms that the people of Dur'iyya would be allowed to leave unharmed to other settlements in Najd, including Riyadh. And Ibrahim Basha uh, more or less honored that. But as soon as they were out of Dur'iyya, Dur'iyya was raised to the ground and the ruins of Dur'iyya to this day can be seen, a testament to a small village of 40 houses that really conquered all of Arabia. The power yeah. of faith, the power of ideology, the power of one man's vision. Yes, Abdullah, the, the last emir of the first Saudi state, was taken to Istanbul and beheaded. And uh, you would have thought that the story of Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab and his mission would, would end there. It seemed pretty dark. But as we know, that wasn't to be. Eventually, the torch uh, of the mission would be taken up again uh, by the House of Saud, especially its greatest leader of all, uh, King Abdulaziz, in the early 20th century, uh, where the modern state of Saudi Arabia was reconstituted, really, in the model of that first state, but with much greater, in my view, much greater wisdom, worldly wisdom, and even, I would say, religious wisdom than Indeed. the first Saudi state. So, Ayman, you know, Ibn Abdul Wahhab's legacy, it's, it's, it's mixed, but his predilection for pronouncing tekfir— it, it has left its mark, surely. It's, it's left its mark 
on extremist movements today, on Salafi jihadism today, right? I mean, in a way, we can track that back to him. Indeed. I mean, in, in my opinion, while I revere the man and I believe that the man, more or less, used the threat of takfir and the threat of the pronunciation of takfir, you know, which is the excommunication against certain societies and settlements, he used it as a deterrence. He used it as a means to an end, not as an end in itself. However, for me, why I'm uneasy about it is because while he might have had good intentions (laughs) in doing so, he might have been handing over grenades to toddlers like candy. Because remember, fatwa in Islam, Thomas, is a weapon with two edges, like a two-edged sword. Ibn Abdul Wahab should have known that whatever he is writing would stay on forever and that future generations could misuse whatever he is writing. And therefore, the ease through which you can pronounce takfir against the community, someone else down the line could come and use, not only in general, but in particular, in order not to just threaten to excommunicate, but to excommunicate and then proceed on to commit atrocities. For me, you know, I, I started these two episodes saying that for me, Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab is a bad guy and that I find it hard to like him. And it's true, I, I don't like him. It's actually quite personal because as I read about him and read some of his writings, I realized that Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab hated me, not just because I'm a Christian, really. In fact, he hated a lot of his fellow Muslims. It's because he, he, he thought that the sort of spirituality that I practice every day of my life was idolatry and for that reason laid me open justly to, to murder. You know, I know in my heart that he was wrong about Tawheed. The oneness of God is not something that radically separates God from everything else. It is a oneness that he communicates to everything else granting us our unity as individual objects and uniting us all with each other. And that there's a sort of cascading grace <laughs> emanating from the divine that incorporates everything in its bounteous, merciful bosom and, and, and sometimes incorporates particularly holy figures and even places. This is a Christian view, you know, and every day I pray to saints I, and I go to church and I, I participate in rituals in which material reality is saturated with the divine and yet God is one. So uh, that's my beef with Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab. He hates me. He is telling me that my spirituality is false, but he's wrong about that. I promise you, amen. <laughs> Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Anyway, however, <laughs> look, I will give you my solemn promise that he hated his fellow Muslims more than he hated you. Oh, that's good. That makes me feel a lot better. Yeah, yeah. I tell you why. Because basically, you know, for him, you are Ahl al-Kitab. You are a Kitabi. You are someone who follow the book. But he would be classifying fellow Muslims who were practicing idolatry in his eyes as below Jews and Christians. You are not someone who's trying to defile Islam and the faith. You are a fellow kitabi, ironically. Even so, 
my sympathy goes out to uh, the Muslims at that time who he did consider to be apostates. And despite the theological differences I have with such Muslims, the underlying metaphysical kind of conception of the divine and his, its oneness that, that underlies the spirituality is the same. It's shared. And so to that extent, my heart goes out to all those Muslims who <laughs> found themselves on the other side of Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab's uh, fiery preaching. <laughs> Indeed. Well, that is certainly a pregnant way to finish this telling of uh, the life of Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab. His legacy is, we can say, divided. On the one hand, it resulted in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia as it is today. But on the other side, the legacy of Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab became mixed and mingled with other modern reformist movements within uh, Islam, specifically that known as the Muslim Brotherhood. And so in our next episode, we're going to tell the story of a great Muslim thinker from the 20th century, who's the one who mixed uh, a bit of Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab's uh, teaching with a bit of Muslim Brotherhood teaching to create that very potent, very powerful ideological mix known as Salafi Jihadism. I'm talking about Sayyid Qutb. Uh, it's going to be another really great history lesson, but a great story. Stay tuned. Uh, see you next time. A reminder that you can follow the show over on Facebook and Twitter at MHConflicted. And for a deeper dive into all the subjects we talk about here on Conflicted, head over to Facebook and search Conflicted Podcast Discussion Group. There you will find other fans of the show engaging in heated debates, enlightening conversations, and just generally geeking out over Conflicted-related topics. Conflicted is a Message Heard production. This episode was produced and edited by Harry Stott. Sandra Ferrari is our executive producer. Our theme music is by Matt Huxley and Tom Biddle.